This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I had this intuition, this gut feeling that something was off. If something's going to happen, it's usually going to happen when you're in transit. We're surrounded by angry gunmen who then take over the vehicle. We're forced out of the Land Cruiser in order to walk to what I believed was going to be my execution. It was as close to hell as I ever hoped to experience. Hello, you are listening to Proverbs with Daisy Maskell. It is me, Daisy. Welcome. This is a podcast all about extraordinary people and extraordinary stories. Here we will shine the spotlight on their journeys and hopefully learn something about ourselves and the way that we live our lives from their experiences too. Join me as we get to know our guest. In October 2011, Jessica Buchanan was taken hostage, driven out into the desert in Somalia and held captive for 93 days. Her ransom was rumoured to be set at $45 million, but as her health began to decline, the US Navy SEALs launched an operation to raid the compound and free her. She was returned to her family in January 2012 and is here to share her story. So Jessica, I wonder if you could start by giving us some background and telling us about the work that you were doing in Somalia in 2011. So I'm a teacher by profession and that's how I ended up working in East Africa. I mean, I'm, I always joke and say I grew up in the middle of a cornfield in Ohio, which is pretty much true. So people always wonder, well, how did you make that progression from a cornfield to the Horn of Africa? And, you know, that is a good question. I did a student teaching stint in an international school in Nairobi, Kenya, and they offered me a full-time teaching position when I finished up. So I gladly took it. I was in love with teaching and in love with East Africa. And then a couple months into my uh, position there, I was out on a Saturday night with some girlfriends and met this cute Swedish guy who then I fell in love with too. And so he was based in Nairobi, but he was working up in Hargeisa, Somaliland. And, and then eventually I had to be based there. And so we got married about a year and a half after we met. And instead of having a long distance relationship, marriage, really, we decided that I'd quit my teaching position and go up to Hargeisa and be based there. Um, you know, teachers can find work anywhere, I reasoned. And so, um, you know, I started off teaching English in my dining room to, we had a bunch of Ethiopian refugees living on our compound, uh, doing work on, on the premises. So like the kids, and before I knew it, I had a dining room full of grown men 
playing <laughs> games to learn English words and vocabulary. And then word got out quickly that there was an actually like trained teacher in town. And so I started working for the Ministry of Education and the United Nations as a consultant and then landed this position for the Danish Demining Group, uh, which was the mine action unit of the Danish Refugee Council as their education advisor in armed violence reduction, uh, mine risk education and community safety. And so, you know, basically what I did was I, I was their regional education advisor. So I traveled all over South Sudan, Northern Uganda, Somalia, Kenya, and trained our uh, local staff in those regions to go out and message the dangers of leftover uh, landmines and ex- unexploded ordinances um, and firearms. The communities that we were working in were mainly post-conflict, and some of them were even 20 years post-conflict, but there were still um, explosives uh, left over from those wars, um, leaving large swaths of land that were uninhabitable, and, and kids would end up, maybe they were herding goats or something, and then they'd see something shiny and pick it up, and it could blow up and kill them or maim them or blind them. Um, so that that was essentially what I did. Um, it was amazing work. I met incredible people, got to see some really interesting things. Like sometimes it felt like I was working for National Geographic or something. Um, and and it felt very purpose-driven and, and very meaningful. And then what happened in October of that same year? So I was, you know, roving around. I'd been doing trainings in all of my different project locations. And I had yet to go to Southern Somalia. Uh, we had a project based in Galkayo because of security issues. We did have a couple of expat staff that were um, based there, like full-time. And one of them was a colleague and a friend of mine, a Danish guy named Paul. And um, he had asked me to come down and do a training similar to the ones that I was doing in other projects. And I had canceled it twice before because I didn't feel good about it. I just felt like I had this like, you know, this intuition, this gut feeling that something was off. And the third time around, you know, it was approaching and, and I still had that gut feeling and I couldn't tell if it was like real or if it was just me not wanting to go or, you know, what I couldn't figure out what I was like paranoid about, what I was afraid of. And so I called him and I said, I don't feel good about this. Let's figure something else out. And he was like, yeah, no, but this is your job. And, you know, I'm down here and, and things are fine. And, you know, I checked with this, the, the security advisor in Nairobi, everything was on the up and up. And so um, I ignored that feeling and, and ended up going down there in October. It was just a three-day training. First two days were on site where we were staying. So we didn't have to be transported because that's what I was really worried about was having to leave one location and, and travel to another. Cause if something's going to happen, it's usually going to happen when you're in transit. Mm-hmm. So the third day we go to this other office to train some separate staff. We get through it. Everything goes great. And then around three o'clock in the afternoon, we are loaded up into a convoy of three vehicles, three land cruisers with armed guards in the front, armed guards in the back. And we're in the middle, Paul and I, with some other national staff. And we pull through the the compound gates and we're driving through uh, the town of Galkayo. We have a driver who's driving us and we are about 10 minutes into 
the transit back to the other office when our cars overtaken essentially another car comes up on the right side and cuts us off and slashes mud up all over our windows and our windshields and then we're surrounded by angry gunmen who then take over the vehicle they drive us out into the desert for hours we stop we change vehicles we drive some more we stop we change personnel until very you know early hours of the morning the sun hasn't come up yet we finally stop um, and we're forced out of the Land Cruiser in order to walk to what I believed was going to be my execution. And, and then we are forced to participate in what I would call a mock execution and um, to establish like that power, I think. Mm-hmm. And then um, that would begin 93 days of hell. I cannot imagine what you must have been feeling. I cannot imagine what must have been going through your mind. What what were the conditions like that you were living in, Jess? At the beginning, we thought, okay, well, we're just we're out here in in the desert. We're we're sitting under trees, laying under bushes during the day, and then sleeping out in the open at night. We thought, surely this is going to end at some point, and they're going to take us to a house or a shelter. But it didn't work out that way. Um, we we were outside the entire time. We were driven around a lot. Like they would wake us up in the middle of the night and force us into the vehicles and drive for hours and then stop in what seemed like some sort of arbitrary, you know, spot or location. And then we'd set up camp there. And when I say set up camp, that's like pulling out a mat to sit on during, you know, during the day and sleep on at night. Um, we, I'm surrounded by men the entire time, anywhere from, you know, nine to 30 men, all heavily armed. I mean, I remember one time we were driving to some other location and I had been given a bottle of water and I had put it in the, um, you know how, like if you're sitting in the back and and the seat in front of you will have like a pocket and you can stick Mm -hmm. your stuff in there. I remember trying to grab my water bottle out of that pocket. And instead I pulled out a hand grenade. So the vehicles were like loaded down with explosives, RPGs, like heavy artillery. We were surrounded um, all the time, machine guns. I mean, there were guns pointed at my head every single second of the day. I was the only woman. There was never any other woman there. So of course I'm terrified that I'm going to be assaulted on like a regular basis. And we were starved. I I mean, the food was very sparse. When we did get food, water was dirty. I wasn't able to wash. And it just, you know, you like get to a point where I guess you kind of assimilate and you and you start to get used to it. And um, I, I dropped weight very rapidly. I think by the end of the 93 days, I lost about 45 pounds because I mean, I just wasn't getting any nutrition or any food. You know, we were regularly terrorized. We would be threatened um, to an inch of our lives. Like we would be threatened that we were going to be sold, sold to Al-Shabaab because negotiations weren't going well. Um, you know, I mean, it was, they would you know, Paul and I were taken together and sometimes we could be together. A lot of times we weren't and he would take, they would take one of us like to, you know, another area and fire off rounds of ammo and then come back and tell the other person that they'd been shot or maybe they just, we'd disappear for a couple of days and say that we'd been sold. So it was just like constant like mind games, you know, it was, it was hell. It was, it was as close to hell as I ever hoped to experience. I'll, I'll say that. Continuing the conversation on Proverbs after this short break. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. They started the negotiation process at $45 million. Everybody was in on this thing. This wasn't just like a group of bandits that took us. This was like a well-designed web of crime. We were driven out in the middle of even further out into the desert to, to film this proof of life video. Paul and myself, Jessica, we are safe. Jessica, we're the American military. You're safe now. Did you have a sense of how much time had passed? I didn't really lose track of time because mm-hmm. um, I was outside the whole time. So, you know, I'm watching the sun come up and I'm watching it go down and I don't really have a whole lot to think about other than how much time is passing. I think that happens probably if you're being held hostage in a place where you can't distinguish night from day. Mm -hmm. So you don't know how much time has passed. But for me, that was very easy to, to keep track. I lost track of the dates. So like, for instance, I had one phone call with my husband for like two minutes. And I didn't realize that it was American Thanksgiving on the day that we had talked. Um, But, you know, stuff like that. I, Mm -hmm. you know, we were there over Christmas and New Year's. So I knew somehow I knew those dates. Maybe they even told us like, oh, it's, it's your Christmas or whatever. But um, yeah, I didn't lose sense of time. What was the ransom fee that was requested? And what was the ransom fee that was offered for your release? You know, the, the rumor is that they started the negotiation process the, the guys that had us at $45 million. This all took place at a time when piracy was really rampant in yeah. the, off the coast of the Horn of Africa in the Indian Ocean. There had been a succession of hostage takings, hostage killings, um, a few rescue attempts and successes. And largely those involved um, like container ships with lots of cargo on them, which, you know, that's that's worth a lot. Plus many, many people, you know, crew and captains and the whole thing. We're just two aid workers. (laughs) Like 40, like you, obviously you don't understand what you're asking here. Like $45 million like that. That's, that's insane. Um, And we were told that our, our organization or our people, you know, our, our family and our organization were working together or that was our understanding that they countered at $20,000. So, when, you know, and I mean, there's no reason why people would know this because hopefully most people are never going to go through something like this, but um, a negotiation process is very lengthy um, Mm -hmm. and it is very intense. And the fact that I was only held for 93 days is 
actually really short. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of these similar types of um, ordeals can last for years because um, the negotiations take forever because they start at such an incredibly um, exorbitant amount. And then our people will um, counter at something more realistic, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's going to take a really long time to meet in the middle if you're offering 20,000 and they want 45 million. I can't imagine this would have ever been possible just hearing you speak about the setup and and how you are being watched 24 hours a day. But did you ever think of plotting your own escape? Not really, to be honest. Like, I think I was very pragmatic about the whole thing because, you know, I mean, I'm out in the middle of the desert. I have no idea where I am. I, 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 I mean, I didn't know I had a working knowledge of the geography. I knew the geography in Northern Somalia much better than I did in Southern Somalia because I lived up there and I was based there. So I didn't really, I'd heard of some of these towns before and I didn't know how far we were from things. And I mean, we're in the desert and and it's hot and there was no way I was going to be able to carry enough water to get me through. And if I did find a town, I would probably just be turned over, you know, because mm-hmm. everybody was in in on this thing. You know, this wasn't just like a group of bandits that took us. This was like a well um, designed web of crime. It's like the mafia. You know, they had people in the UK, they had people in the US, they had people everywhere who were financing this and who were strategizing this. And, you know, so the guys on the ground who had us, they're just like puppets, right? Like they're just guards. They're being given cigarettes and cut and 20 bucks a day to to make sure we don't escape. And mm-hmm. um, they didn't really have anything to do with it. So um I knew that my best chance of survival was going to be learning them, Mm. observing them. And it was all going to be a mental game. Like all I had control of was my mind. Um, and, and that was what I was going to have to protect. And that's all I had to work with. And so, yeah, escape didn't really ever feel like an option. There were a couple of times where it would have been easy for me to run off, but then I knew, you know, I just knew they would find me. They had cars, like I'm on foot and and then they, who knows what would happen to me. Yeah. If they, you know, when they found me. Did you ever have moments where you thought that you would never see your husband or your family ever again? I don't think I got to that point. I think Paul and I made two promises to each other after we were driven out in the middle of even further out into the desert to to film this proof of life video. Paul and myself, Jessica, we are safe and we are alive. It was such a surreal experience, you know, because like you you see these things on the movies or maybe you see them on Al Jazeera or something. And to think that maybe that's going to be the last time my family sees me alive. Like, I don't know. I just kind of couldn't go there. And and I remember having a conversation with him and we promised each other that we weren't going to try to escape because we knew that that just that wasn't going to end well for either one of us. And then the yeah. second promise that we made each other is that we were allowed to feel any emotion except despair because despair felt like this bottomless black abyss that if we let ourselves fall into, it wasn't survivable. And so I had that, I had that container or maybe that boundary around myself and my thoughts and my beliefs 
Um, and I just wouldn't let myself go there. And um, I just visualized walking out of there and I visualized getting back to my apartment in Nairobi and I visualized, you know, holding my husband again and, and, and hugging my dad. I just like, I like would get so into it that I would feel like I was almost like, I'm almost there doing it. And I would just do that over and over and over again until I really began to believe that that was what was going to happen. How did you eventually escape Jess? I was, you know, freed on 93 days later on January 25th, 2012. Um, I had gotten really sick. I had gotten a urinary tract infection that had turned into a kidney infection. And I knew this because I'd had one before and I was prone to them. And I knew that if I didn't get medical attention, I was toast. (laughs) Like I wasn't going to survive this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had relayed that in my last, what would have been my last of six proof of life calls. Um, And I didn't know that, you know, of course that that was going to be my last one, but I, I let the family communicator know, like, I'm not doing well. Here are my symptoms. You guys need to get me out. And, um, I went to bed that night, which is, I pulled my mat from under a tree and put it out in the middle of the field and wrap myself up in a blanket. And I woke up a couple of hours later, um, cause I needed to be sick. And I can remember uh, standing, like trying to pull myself up to standing and saying the word toilet to the, to you, cause that was how I asked for permission to, to leave my mat. And there were nine guys on the ground that night and everybody was completely, um, passed out, like completely just like, I mean, not stirring almost as if they were dead or something. And I kept saying the word toilet, but no one would rouse. So I, you know, took a small flashlight that I had and went to the nearest bush and did what I need to do and came back. And I got myself situated in my blanket. And then I started hearing this sound of like, Somebody like, um, you know, if somebody's like walking through tall grass and the breaking, like the sound yeah. of breaking. Yeah. yeah. And I, I thought, well, maybe there's an animal or I didn't know like what was like, there's an animal or something coming toward us. And then the night just erupted into automatic gunfire. And um, the, then, then the guys woke up there, you know, the, the pirate on my left, he was up and he had his, his AK-47 and he's whisper screaming at the rest of the guys to wake up and and no one, uh, uh, the, you know, they're rousing and, and they're trying to get their guns together. And then they're just being hit by bullets and they're dropping to the ground. And I'm just laying there going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Like, I'm really not going to make it out of this thing alive. I, I like I worked so hard and I thought for sure I was going to survive this. But now I'm going to be like shot right here in, in the middle of all of this carnage. And then um, somebody grabs my ankles and my shoulders and pulls the blanket away from my face. And I'm trying to like, you know, protect myself. I'm trying to fight back. And then I hear a young American uh, man's voice and he knows my name. And he says, Jessica, we're the American military. You're safe now. Um, we're going to take you home. Uh, and, and, and I kind of like sit up and, and I can sort of make out. It's very dark. Like the, there's no moon that night. The stars had clouded over it had been really windy, but it had kind of calmed down and I can start to make out um, some like black figures, maybe like uh, bulky, you know, so I'm thinking maybe mm-hmm. these are soldiers or something. And all I can say over and over again is you're American. Oh, wait a <laughs> second. Wait, you're American? Because uh, I, I can't get my mind to like make yeah. sense of, you know, compute. Like I, I just like we're out in the middle of nowhere. Like we're so far in the belly of the desert that there's no ambient light. Like there's no ta- like 
how on earth did they find us? Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, you know, we've been watching you for a long time and we know how sick you've been. And um, he gives me medicine and, and some clean water and, and they, you know, basically carry me out of there. And yeah, the rest is, the rest is now, the rest is, mm-hmm. is my life. What struggles did you face after being held hostage? Well, I had terrible anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder. I was diagnosed pretty quickly afterwards with PTSD. Um, I got pregnant very shortly after the rescue. So I had this like added complexity of like trying to recover and then my body changing and I was very sick and um, just had all of this anxiety and depression. I think probably more than anything, I just felt really lonely because there are not a whole lot of hostages that have survived and mm-hmm. um, are willing to talk about something like this. And so uh, there was really no one who had been through something like this that I could relate to. Um, and so it it took it took years. It took years of getting up every day and uh, showing up and, you know, finding therapists and doing, you know, alternative forms of, of trauma therapy, EMDR, accelerator resolution therapy, you name it, the herbs, like all of it. I've done all of it. And, uh, and just continuing to ah put one foot in front of the other, because I would call the aftermath of the trauma uh, surviving survival. And we don't, I don't think we talk about that enough. We, we yeah. laud the, the surviving of the tra- trauma and the traumatic event. But then what happens when you get dropped back off into a life that you now need to rebuild because I lost my job, essentially, um, you know, we left Africa after my son was born, uh, because I couldn't work anymore. And my, my, I had um, postpartum depression and anxiety and was like out of control, um, and then, you know, plop down here in DC with a baby and a Swedish husband and um, no job and a lot of baggage. <laughs> I didn't know who I was anymore. So um, it's been a really long journey of re- reclaiming myself, reinventing myself and rebuilding my life. I think you're so incredible and I love your, I can, I can see your strength in, in the way that you speak and the way that you articulate yourself. And I, I do, I I think you're just hugely inspiring for not only getting through this, but for pushing through and, and it's just, it's just incredible to hear your story. It really is. How has going through all of this changed your outlook and your perspective on life? Oh man, it's changed everything about it. Um, I think I am much more present than I used to be. I'm very aware that nothing lasts forever, you know, not the good and not the bad. And so I, I think I'm grateful to understand that. Um, I, I'm, I don't want to waste time. I think you'll find that lots of people who've had near death experiences in whatever capacity that looks like, um, have this different understanding and concept of, of time really. Um, and so I just like, still believe the world is a beautiful place. And I still believe that there are so many good people out there and I just like want to experience it all. And I want to show it to my children more than anything. I am an an incredibly grateful person. Um, I'm grateful obviously to SEAL Team 6 who rescued me. Um, I'm grateful to the universe for, um, you know, 
putting me on this path now. Like it's taken me a while to get there and, and to see that, but I believe that things don't, I really do believe that things don't happen uh, to us, that they happen for us. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, it's taken a lot of work, but I think that these things happen to us so that we can see the depth of our own strength and the capacity uh, and resilience that is wired into us. And if we don't, um, I think the, the, the things that happen to us even if they're bad and they're hard and they're grief ridden and they have the ability to teach us about our own, our own capacity. And um, I think that's really what makes the human experience so special. For sure. It shows us what we're capable of, right. And where we are capable of, of so much. What Mm. is keeping you busy right now? What is life like for you in the present? (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm so busy. Um, and I like, (laughs) I'm like, I keep saying that because like, for me, I'm like busy. Like, what does that mean? Um, I need to find a better word for that, but, um, I have two kiddos now. My son is 10 and my daughter is eight. And so I'm, I love that. Like we're, it's just so fun. Um, I do a lot of speaking, so, um, you know, I travel around a lot sharing this story and, um, my goal is to inspire people to think differently about, uh, hard things that come into their lives. And then I do have a publishing company, Soul Speak Press, and I support women who want to write memoir manifestos. So that is, um, someone who's been through something now they know something and now they want to teach us something, um, and we specialize in anthology curation. So we put together these um, collection of women's voices around central themes that highlight their desert to mountaintop experience. Um, mm. So yeah, lots of lots of creating, uh, lots of heart-centered, soul-driven um, story sharing. And I literally like can't believe when I wake up in the morning that this is my life and this is what I get to do. That makes me so happy to hear. You know what? I think you, you know, you've been through such a unique experience and I do genuinely feel like we can all take something away from this episode, just to, from your outlook on life, just being in the present, living in the present, not taking mm-hmm. anything for granted. And, and that is so special. So thank you so much for speaking with us and sharing your story. And I wish you all the best with your future endeavors, Jess. Thank you so much, Daisy. And that concludes this episode of Proverbs with Daisy Maskell. That is me. I hope you enjoyed it. Hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes and I will see you soon. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.